You can pull out your handout for today. If you don't have one, you can grab one, <clears throat> grab one right back there. If you, uh, if you grew up or lived through the 1980s, the blessed decade, and you look at the sermon title on your handout, you might have some flashbacks. Do you remember, if that was you, do you remember what that phrase was talking about? Just say no. Drugs. Yes, say no to drugs. You probably didn't even need to grow up in the 80s to pick up on that. While you shouldn't take illicit drugs, the message this morning is about something different. Uh, it's about saying no to something that's much more tempting than drugs or other vices. It's about saying no to temptation that could have far worse consequences than those other things. It's about saying no to the belief that God doesn't care or that he doesn't love you, especially when life is difficult. And this is a huge temptation even for the most devout Christians. Lately, it's been challenging for me uh, as I've heard a number of stories from close friends who have lost family members, just like in the last week or so. And the theme has been a lot of these family members that have passed away have been pretty young, like younger than myself, and unexpectedly. Very trying and difficult times. And if you're like me, you, you go to God and you say, God, do you, do you love us? Do you care? Don't you see what's going on? It's not supposed to be this way. God, I am tempted to believe that the thing that I'm going through or that the thing that my friend is going through is something that you don't care about or that you don't see. This is the battle that we face, and it's critical to your faith and my faith that we say no to this temptation. The temptation to believe that God doesn't care, that he doesn't love us, and the text this morning is going to help us to persevere and say no to that temptation. Let's take a time of prayer here before we get into the word. If you would, bow your heads with me. God, thank you for uh, our gathering here this morning. Thank you that we can be here to encourage one another, that we can be here to sing praises to you, that we can hear from your word, that we can learn how we can grow in trusting you more, rejoicing in your character, seeing your love more clearly. We're going to be looking in, in Romans 8, and I wish we had time to just do the whole thing uh, in depth, but part of what Paul is saying in Romans 8 is that we are weak. We live in a world of sin, in a broken world, and even when we, we consider prayer, our prayers are weak. 
Our prayers are broken. And, and you write, or Paul writes, uh, God, you write through Paul in chapter 8, verse 26, says the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that, and words that cannot express. So we are trusting that even in our prayers, we're trusting in you. This topic this morning can be a very difficult one because it touches to the core of who we are and who you are, especially when the difficult times hit. God, I pray that you would help each of us to see you for who you are. I pray for encouragement for those who are, who are just now, even in our midst, battling their faith, or their faith is a, is a big wrestling match. I pray that you would help them not to give up, not to throw in the towel, to hold on to Jesus. Even in a, in a world or a room that feels so dark, help them to hold on to that last photon that is there that is coming from you. Help us to persevere and help us to see Jesus. I pray that you would uh, sharpen each of us as we sharpen one another, that we would bring the truth of the gospel and all of its implications in our conversations, in our fun times, in our hard times, that we take those steps, that initiative towards one another, because that's what you want us to do. You've made us into a body that is to encourage and to build each other up. So please help us to do that. God, I pray for this morning that you would prepare our hearts to hear your word from Romans 8. Give me the words to say and use it mightily in our lives. We pray this all in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in Romans 8, uh, particularly verses 28 to 39, but I feel like I have to give you a little bit of background before we kind of hit the ground running. Uh, Paul is the author, he's the apostle Paul, he's writing to a church in Rome, and we are on page 888, by the way, in the church Bibles, if you want to turn there. Paul is basically talking about the message of Christianity. What's it all about? If you've heard the word gospel before, that would be a good summary. The good news. What's it all about? And so he explains what it is as he's going through Romans. And then he, he kind of addresses some uh, implicit questions that the audience might have. Because it's kind of a letter. It's a one-way communication. And the chapter right before this one, I would say that he deals with the implicit question of, well, I'm a Christian now and I have faith, but I still do the wrong thing. I still sin. So what does this mean for me? And Paul deals with that. And if you've read this before, he gets to the point where he says, look, we do the wrong thing. I do the wrong thing. What a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? And again, if you've read it before, you know the very next thing that he says is a verse you should all have memorized, Romans 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't add on extra things, no extra qualifiers. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. So he deals with that issue of sin and and, in a believer's life. And how do I wrestle through this? And then he goes into another topic, I believe, this implicit question of, well, if that is true, if there are no, if, if it's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, what about my life now? What about the stuff I go through now? Does God not care about the way uh, my life and the circumstances that I go through? That's what I think Paul is addressing here, largely in Romans chapter 8. And if you want to, you can look. I'll just make a few other references here. Just kind of back up my case. Verse 18 of chapter 8. He says that uh, he acknowledges the suffering that we face in our world. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Oh, I, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, verse eight, 18. Yeah, the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. Verse 23, even the creation itself is groaning. The verse I referenced earlier during the prayer time, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't even know how to pray. So Paul is very clearly recognizing that we live in a broken world. And we will wonder, where's God at in this broken world? So with that in mind, let's read Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who was interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you look at your outline, we're going to cover this in two points, God is at work, and Jesus proves it. Verses 28 to 30, a few observations. Paul starts off by saying, we know, 
We know these things. We're not guessing. We're not just crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. We know. And what do we know? We know that God works. And not only does God work in sort of the the big moments of life, he says all. God works in all things. So when you brush your teeth in the morning and, and when you come to church and all the different things, God is at work. And why is he doing this? He says that he's doing it for good. And he's doing it for certain people, for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. So those are the same people, just described two different ways. And he says, this is all of this working for these people is for a purpose. At the end of verse 20, 28, that word purpose is there. And that purpose is explained in verse 29 and 30, that he says, it's it's for these people so that they can be conformed to the image of his son. That's Jesus. So these things that we go through in life have a purpose that God is working to make you more like Jesus. And I believe in verse 30, he's kind of giving us a picture of kind of what life looks like for those who are in Christ. He says that he, God calls you, he justifies you, and then he's leading you to, to glory. Now, he has the word glorified in a past sense, but I think what he's getting at there is sort of the already but not yet. So that's true, but we're, all, we're on our way there. So what does this mean? This means that the Bible presents a radically different view of life than what the world around us would have. Uh, what, what people might say is random or pointless is contrary to what the Bible says. Or maybe you might say that about your own life. And again, a believer in God's word will have a radically different view of the world and the things that are happening in their lives. So the suffering, for example, that we go through is not ignored by God. Romans says that God is actually using those things, using them to make you more like Jesus. And that they have a purpose. And if you believe in Jesus, this is a truth you need to hold on to. I need to hold on to it. And to remember verse 30, we are on this pathway. God is using these things. He's justified us, bringing us to glory. We're all on this path if we are in Christ. Now, each person doesn't mean we're on the exact same circumstantial path. You might be going through through things that I'm not going through and vice versa. But what's common to all of us is that we are going through this world together, this broken world, this world of suffering, this sinful world, to become like Jesus and to end up in glory. This world is not the end. So to apply these words, I would encourage you to see that God is at work and that there is a purpose and that he's using all of these things for his ends to make you more like Jesus. In in the moment, you might feel like God is at lunch or he's taking a siesta or he's busy off somewhere else in the universe because he's got better things to do than to worry about your life. But Paul says that if you are in Christ, these words are true for you. He is working all things together for good.
for those who love him. So if you are in Christ, you might as well wear a construction sign around your neck that says, you know, God at work, stay back. (laughs) Or active work zone, fines doubled. I remember when I first believed in Jesus, it was the, the end of my sophomore year at college over at Penn State. And it was the time when I said, okay, I God, I, I believe you. I'm going to bank the chips of my life, like on, on your, you know, if it was a real, I always think of a roulette wheel for some reason. Like I'm putting all the chips on this one number, my whole life banking it on you. And when I prayed and I felt like the scales of my mind, like kind of came off scales of my eyes and I saw reality for what it was that, that God was, was there and, and working around the whole world, that he created the world, that he cared about his people, and that I got to be a part of that. And I remember thinking, wow, my whole life I've been ignorant of this perspective. And most of the people that I know are ignorant of this perspective. The temptation to believe that God is not there and that he's not working and that he doesn't care, again, is very strong. I mentioned friends, uh, the stories of friends who had relatives pass away. It is, it is is certainly tempting in those moments. But day to day, to look and see that God is active and present in our world and in your life is a challenge. I was thinking about this message here and there are times when I feel uh, underappreciated or unappreciated, and I have to look. Does God know? Yes, He's the one that sees. Or when I read in the news and think about the future, and I get really fearful, God knows He is in control. Or when I consider what Paul says here, that God is at work in all things, When you really wrap your head around that, when God is in control and working through all things, especially in my life, all things, that directly impacts how I view prayer. Because I get to join with what God is doing. I may not know all the reasons, but I get to pray and join with him in this work that he's doing. How do these truths, how does this this perspective impact you? After our service here, we have our practices to have some small group discussion. So I'd love for you to encourage you all to ask each other that question and talk about it. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, if you are not a believer, thank you so much for coming. But I do need to give you a disclaimer, and I think I've said it already, but I just want to be explicit, that Paul says that God is working together all things for good for those who love him and have been called to his purpose. So that means you have to follow Jesus. You have to give your life to him if you want these words to be true. Because if, if you are not following Jesus, if you've not been forgiven to your sin, you're not on a pathway to glory. You're on a pathway to destruction. And now's the time to repent, turn back, and have the forgiveness that Jesus offers because he wants this to be true in your life. As believers, we do need to hold on to these verses, and they need to be the the glasses through which we see the world, our interpretive lens that we see the world 
that God does care. He does love us. He's not aloof. He's not somewhere else. But he's using these things for purpose. Now, you might say, that's great, Reese. Those are, those are some great words. But they're words on a page. Now, I want to say that helps us transition to point number two because Paul asserts that, that God is at work in using all of these things But Jesus proves that they're true. And Paul goes from verse 31 to 39 to outline this. He continues his point, I would say, to say that we need to say no to this temptation that God is uh, aloof or doesn't care. And what he does to drive home his point is a series of rhetorical questions that crescendo... And what I want to do with all of us is to go through these and answer them. And it's sort of like a test. Let's see how you do. Verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Answer? No one. Okay, let's try that again. Answer? No one. Good. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with them graciously give us all things? Answer? Okay, this one's a little tricky because of the way the English is. Okay, he won't is the answer, okay? He won't. He will give us uh, these things. If he gave us the most precious thing, the logic goes from Paul, if he gave us Jesus, the most precious thing, he's not going to skimp out on the other things. So he won't give us less. And Paul says all things that he will give. And um, also just to point out that he says with him. So this idea is that God the Father's giving and Jesus are giving all things. He's not going to skimp. Hi, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Verse 34. Who is to condemn? No one. So God is the judge. He has declared those in him not guilty. And not only that... um, It says in verse 34 that Jesus is the one who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. So not only if you're in Christ, are you not guilty, but then you have Jesus cheerleading for you in heaven and championing and interceding for you. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. But. Again, what about the difficult things? What about the hard things? Doesn't that negate God's love? Look at verse 35. Shall, and this is a question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What's the answer? No. No. Just because you go through difficult times does not mean that God doesn't care. That he does not love you. 
Paul knows that we will struggle with this temptation. He probably did himself. And what he does in the next verse is he quotes an Old Testament, a part of the Bible, in Psalm 44. And at first you might think, if you read verse 36, that's a little odd. Like, what is he talking about being killed and sheep? And then if you look at verse 37, what's the very next word that happens after this? No. I don't know if you've ever read this before. Have you ever wondered, like, what is he negating? Why does he start the sentence with no? No. Bible, no. Old Testament, no. What's he negating? Well, in order to get a better idea of what he is negating here, we have to understand the context of Psalm 44, what he's quoting there in verse 36, and why he's quoting it that way. Um, And... Let me kind of step aside here just to give you a little bit of sort of how you read the Bible. So if you come across an Old Testament illusion or quotation like right here and you're reading it in the New Testament or really any part of the Bible quoting itself, you need to understand the context of that quote so you can get the full meaning of what the author is intending. To illustrate this point, uh, years ago I was uh, on campus leading a Bible study, and uh, there was about six guys there, and I was trying to illustrate this point, that you have to go understand things in context, and I said to the guys, let me ask you some questions, and I'm going to throw some phrases out and see if you know what I'm talking about. And I said, do you know the context, or do you know this phrase, four score and seven years ago? Do you know the phrase, one small step for man? Do you know this phrase, we the people? So in that Bible study, five out of the six guys were shaking their heads. And so I looked at the last guy and I, I, like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, wait, you've never heard of we the people? He's like, no, I've never heard it in my life. That's weird. I said, aren't you an American? He's like, no. <laughs> I'm Canadian. <laughs> he fooled me. I, I, he didn't say A, so I would have picked up on that. So when Paul makes an Old Testament reference here, he's expecting that his audience will understand the context, they'll understand the stuff that's surrounding it, all those feelings, you know, those phrases may have evoked feelings that I used earlier, because you're familiar with the context. And so that's what Paul expects his audience to bring in as well. Now, you don't need to turn there, but I do want to just quickly bring some of that context in Uh, Psalm 44, so you can turn there if you want or just listen. In Psalm 44, the author starts off by praising God. There's a lot of praises going on. And then in verse 9, there is this like record scratch. You know those movies where you come in and there's like... like, It just hits you in the face, verse 9. But you, now you have rejected us. He's talking about God. And he goes on this litany of, of complaints or sharing his feelings. 
And it builds. And, and in verse 22, which is the part that Paul quotes, he says, yet for your sake we face death all day long. We're like sheep to be slaughtered. And the part that Paul doesn't quote is the verse right after this one in Psalm 44, where the author has the gall to say to God, you're asleep. You don't care. I'm paraphrasing. You're asleep. Wake up. Wake up. Have you ever told God that? And <laughs> That's in the Bible. Does this author of Psalm 44 feel this way about his circumstances and about God? Yes, that's how he feels. But is that the truth? Is God aloof and doesn't care about his circumstance or their circumstances? The answer is no. And this is where we get back to Romans 8. Paul says, no. In verse 37, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that him is Jesus. And Paul goes on to say in verse 38 that, that this whole um, breath of things, life or death, height or depth, death, height or depth, will be able to separate us from God's love. So God's love is not going to change. And if you are tempted to believe otherwise, Paul is encouraging you to look to Jesus. If you've experienced his love, his forgiveness, then you say no. You just say no. You say no to anything that, that smells or sounds or looks like God doesn't care or doesn't love you. He gave that list in verse 35. And if you look at that list, those are pretty difficult things. It might be being persecuted for your faith. Or it might be as bad as famine, like you have no food, and there's not, you have no food, and there's no food at the store. Or he says nakedness, you don't even have money to buy clothes. Or he ends with the sword, and what, he, what he's implying there is that you would be killed for your faith. Even if that were true, and you are going through those, that does not mean that God has stopped loving you. In verse 37, he says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I think that's a really funny phrase. Because if you're a conqueror, like if I came in and like conquered everything, whatever it was, I'm like, I'm on the top. Like, how could you be better than that? How could you be more than a conqueror? And I think what Paul is trying to express is like this idea of like at the top and, and, and trying to bring all this feeling to it. And I was thinking, how do we kind of express that in our vernacular? So we might say, you know, to the nth degree or like the best of the best, or maybe in Jesus, you're a Googleplex. 
Maybe I should explain what a Googleplex is. The biggest number that you can think of is a Googleplex. That's where Google came from, by the way. Paul is saying that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And again, what is critically important is to remember that Paul is not saying that our circumstances and what we go through equates to God's love because it is very difficult in some of those difficult moments. In those moments, it may not look like this extreme level of victory that Paul talks about in verse 37. And again, he acknowledges the difficulties. And what we need to do is look past our current circumstances and look to Jesus. And remember that God is at work and Jesus proves it. Jesus is the one who went through the suffering on our behalf to rescue us from our sin and to make us more like him and bring us on that pathway to glory. So again, when you are tempted to feel like God doesn't care or that he's aloof, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is on your side pleading for your case. A few weeks ago, I was, uh, you know, how things like pop up when you're on your phone. One of the things that popped up was greatest NFL comeback of all time. I was like, ooh, I got to watch that. So I was like, I mean, who doesn't like comebacks? So I'm like watching it. I'm like, wow, how are they going to come back from this? Like, it looks totally like game's over. I've seen a million games. It's the third quarter. They're down, you know, 50 million to zero. And, uh, you know, and then they come back and they win. And you're like, wow, that was amazing. What if you're watching that game and it's the third quarter, and you're like, I know how this is going to end. I'm going to go do something else. You would have missed the greatest comeback in NFL history, watching it live. I bet you would have wanted to know that ahead of time. Well, in Christ, this is not a football game, but the principle is the same. We know how it ends. And it may be very dark, and it may be very tempting to say, this is a big L for loss right now, and I'm going to give up. But I would encourage you, and Paul encourages you, to not give up. You know it may be dark, but it might be the beginning of the greatest comeback. A glorious... I don't even know the word. Just transportation into glory that God is doing in your life in this moment, no matter how dark it seems. We can persevere because Jesus has already suffered and is with us, helping us along the way. You see, what is at stake through this whole life that we own, or our whole Christian lives, is not God's love. What is at stake is our perspective on his love. As I mentioned, it is difficult at times when I have suffered or others close to me have suffered or I, when I read about Christian persecution 
or maybe one of the top ones I wrestle with, is John the Baptist. And what happened to him? In my heart, it doesn't make sense. God, how could you allow this to happen? And it doesn't make sense until I look at Jesus. Until I look at Jesus, who suffered the greatest injustice of all on purpose to bring me life. And that's the life he offers you. And God is at work bringing his family to himself, making them more like Jesus, who led the way. Jesus' death and resurrection are something that is concrete in history. It happened. And that proves that God is not aloof or that he does not care. I think one of the big reasons why we struggle with this perspective, and I know it's true in me, this perspective that it's attempting to believe that God is uh, aloof or doesn't care. I think it's because we don't fully appreciate what Jesus has done for us. Last month, uh, I watched a play that some of our church members were in called The Christmas Carol. And if you're not familiar with that play, there's a, there's a character, the main character, his name is Scrooge. And he has a, uh, he's a rich guy that's very full of himself, doesn't care about anybody else. And by the end of the play, there's this beautiful thing that happens. He experiences redemption. And I remember watching the play, and, you know, the guy's not becoming a Christian, but there's a, there's a picture there of this redemption that happens, and I'm, I'm like tearing up because I'm thinking about what God has done for me. Wow, like that was me. I was Scrooge. And, and I had this chance to turn away before it's too late and, and, and experience this joy. And you see the guy in, in the play is, has so much joy. And so as I'm sitting there watching this play happen, tearing up with joy as at the picture of, you know, this little picture of what it looks like to become a Christian and have forgiveness, I say to God, I'm like, God, Oh my goodness, is this feeling that I'm having right now over this guy in this play who's experiencing redemption, is this what it's like for you when you look at my life, when you see the turnaround that happens in me? It's amazing. We need to realize how much God loves us and that he wants to see us turn from the darkness to light, from sin to forgiveness, from nothing to Jesus. I would encourage you, turn to Jesus. And when you do, these words light up like a bright light. Therefore, there is now no condemnation in Christ. And in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Another translation says we have complete victory because of Jesus. And know that verse 38 and 39 and all those things, even verse 35, all those things will not get in the way 
of God's love for you. So you can say very boldly and declaratively, does God care? Or God doesn't care. No, because he does. Jesus is the one who proved that he cares. Again, Christians have this unique worldview, this interpretive lens to see how the world is operating, that God is in control. He's not off in some far-off universe doing his own thing. Paul does not dance around the, 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 uh, the truth that we go through difficult things, but what he's saying is that God is using those things for good in the lives of believers. And that if you are in doubt, you look to Jesus who died and was resurrected for our benefit. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Paul. Thank you that we can see Jesus clearly, that uh, though we struggle with doubt about your love for us, he even forgives that. What an amazing love. Help us to hold on to you, no matter how dark, no matter how bad it feels, no matter how alone or abandoned we might feel. Jesus, you were the one who was abandoned far worse and far more than we have or will ever be abandoned and will suffer greater and more injustice than we ever have or will. You've led the way. You've proved your love for us. Help us to hold on to Jesus this day. We pray this in your name. Amen.